This is Addiction Medicine Journal Club. I'm Dr. John Keenan. And I'm Dr. Sonia Del Tredici. We believe that addiction is a disease that can be treated, and we want to help you stay up to date with the latest research that you can use in your addiction medicine practice. This week, we are going to be discussing an article about coronary plaque regression in a contingency management program for cocaine use disorder. How are you doing, Sonia? Doing really well. How are you doing, John? Ah, fantastic. Anything exciting going on? Well, I did want to share some things with our listeners. I've been seeing people starting to ask where they can get the MATE Act trainings for their DEA license renewals. As you know, at the beginning of this year, new DEA regulations went into effect, and every provider who has a DEA license will have to certify that they have done eight hours of training on the treatment and management of patients with opioid and other substance use disorders. But you don't have to do eight new hours of training. Any education that you've done in the past that meets their qualifications will count. But just in case any of our listeners are missing some of their eight hours, I want to share some free online resources for this education. So the first is a system called the PCSS, Providers Clinical Support System, and they have a ton of free online trainings, including the original eight-hour buprenorphine waiver training course. I also have got to give a podcast shout out to the Curbsiders Addiction Medicine. Their podcasts are eligible for CME and they are totally amazing. There are also other free online trainings from NIDA, from the AMA, from ASAM, and a bunch of other places. But I'm going to put a list of the links of the ones I think are the best in the show notes. And I just hope some of our listeners will find these references useful. John, do you think these new DEA trainings are going to change the landscape of opioid prescribing? I don't know about opioid prescribing, but I I would love to see more people get interested in addiction medicine. I think that message has been received that probably too much opioid prescribing, too high doses, probably not with appropriate indications or monitoring or counseling prior to initiation. I think that that message has been received by the vast majority of physicians and and APPs at this point in time. I think that the next step, though, is kind of getting more people comfortable with kind of prescribing at least buprenorphine. So I think that hopefully the additional training, people will uh, kind of expand what they're learning about to hopefully include uh, buprenorphine, and hopefully we get some more prescribers out of that. Yeah, I agree. It's my dream that all primary care doctors are comfortable treating opioid use disorder in their primary care practices. And it's not 100% simple. You know, there are some nuances to working with people with addiction safely and to do the best job you can. So I think there is some value in targeted education for this. But yeah, if every PCP out there would just take a few patients with opiate use disorder onto their panels, we really could make a huge difference in the opiate epidemic and we'd provide much needed treatment for people who are really ill. I think it's not any different than any of our other kind of behavioral health treatments. I talked to some older physicians before and they told me that they weren't comfortable prescribing medicines for depression, that they send everyone to a psychiatrist for that. I think that, you know, there is a little bit of finesse to anything with behavioral health, but I think that, you know, you kind of get understand the science of the medication and then kind of get there and start practicing and learning how kind of the art of of prescribing and kind of matching the treatments to the patient. It's very similar. So I think that every primary care physician is clearly capable of this. And I think that, you know, maybe a little more education than kind of dipping their feet in the water for the first patient. And I think they'd really like it and find it rewarding. I'm trying to do an initiative at St. Max's Health System where I pass stable buprenorphine patients back to their PCPs to free up spots in my clinics for people who are more unstable. 
I uh, haven't had any takers yet, but if any of our local PCPs are listening to this and you want to take your patients back from me, who I've been treating for opiate use disorder for a few years, just let me know and I'll always be available for consult in case something comes up. That's a great idea. So John, what have you been thinking about in addiction medicine this week? So I guess this kind of uh, ties into what we're going to talk about tonight, but I was reading from uh, Johns Hopkins uh, Bloomberg School of Public Health. So this is a, got a press release from March 2023, and basically it was by the members of the Motivational Incentives Policy Group, and it's called Contingency Management for Treatment of Stimulant Use Disorder and Strategies to Address Polysubstance Use. And I think you'll probably go into it in the article, but for anyone who doesn't know, contingency management is a treatment that's currently approved for methamphetamine use disorder and cocaine use disorder, which is really helpful because we don't have any FDA approved medications for either one of those conditions. And it's a way of treating these conditions where you give tangible rewards, either financial rewards or you give items to incentivize kind of good behaviors or progress in their recovery. And it really works. So there's multiple meta-analysis showing that it does work. The problem with it is, is, is who's going to kind of pay for this and how can, can we afford to do this? There's a lot of kind of call for all this opioid settlement money to some of it be diverted to this, especially since we're in this fourth wave of the opioid epidemic, which involves kind of polysubstance with opioids and stimulants. Currently, uh, any kind of uh, contingency management protocols or, or, or programs are federally funded, so they're not kind of typically through standard insurance practices, and they're capped at $75 a month, which is something, but most of the studies show that that's not adequate. You need at least two to $300 per month for a three to six month period of time to get kind of a statistically uh, significant improvement in, in outcomes. So I think it's interesting they're talking about kind of maybe redistributing some of that money I hope we do more research in this uh, just because um, if it's cost effective to kind of engage this group, maybe we can also just run this through our current insurance protocols to hopefully kind of improve treatment outcomes of this kind of difficult comorbid substance use disorder. Well, right. I think it's so fascinating that an intervention like contingency management, you know, winning prizes, getting a little dopamine surge from something nice happening when you go to the doctor's office especially if it's a lot of money, like 50 bucks or 100 bucks, that dopamine surge is actually the thing that counteracts the lack of dopamine from, you know, being withdrawing from or not being on your illicit stimulants. So I think it's just such a fascinating idea and I'm thrilled that it actually works. Yeah, and I didn't know that the VA already does this. So the VA already has a program for contingency management and uh, California is actually putting into kind of the Medicaid program a proposal for basically piloting this. So hopefully, instead of this kind of being on federal grants that can dry up from time to time, and I've had colleagues that have talked about having a contingency management program involvement, and then kind of the, the grant dries up, and then those patients are kind of left in the wind and then kind of half treated to how that can be really difficult. So hopefully we can get some less barriers to this moving forward. Yeah, I'd love to be able to have a contingency management program. I think it'd be really cool. So that's a great segue into talking about this paper. So this paper was titled High Risk Coronary Plaque Regression in Cash-Based Contingency Management Intervention Among Cocaine Users with HIV-Associated Subclinical Coronary Atherosclerosis. That is a mouthful. It was published in the Journal of Addiction Medicine in their March-April issue, of 2023. So since I'm a general internist, I saw the phrase coronary atherosclerosis in the title. 
I just knew I had to review it. Basically, they had me at the phrase low attenuation coronary plaque volume, which is all over this paper. So first, some background. The study looked at a triple whammy for cardiac health, cocaine use, HIV, and coronary atherosclerosis, meaning plaques or blockages in the coronary arteries. We know that both cocaine and HIV are risk factors for the development of coronary artery disease, as well as traditional cardiac risk factors like high blood pressure and high cholesterol, there is some concern that the highly active antiretroviral therapy you use to treat HIV itself over the long term can cause coronary artery disease. It has also been shown that HIV-associated subclinical coronary atherosclerosis is exacerbated particularly by cocaine use. So having HIV and using cocaine seem to be synergistic risk factors for the development of coronary artery disease. So that's background number one. Background number two, the study used two things to determine coronary atherosclerosis. The first was levels of ET1, which is endothelin 1, and that's a coronary biomarker. It's a potent vasoconstrictor, and it stimulates the growth of vascular muscle cells, so it can contribute to the narrowing of the arteries. It is ubiquitous in all parts of the coronary atherosclerotic tissue, and it's often used as a biomarker to indicate coronary artery disease. It also seems to play a role in the pathogenesis of heart failure. So you see it in people with CHF. For those cardiologists in our audience, I know we have a lot of cardiologists who are listeners and they'll be very interested in this. The second thing they used to determine the amount of coronary artery disease or coronary atherosclerosis was the volume of the coronary plaques themselves. They did cardiac CT angiograms and those angiograms looked at something called the NCPV, the non-calcified coronary plaque volume, which is a marker of coronary artery disease, and the LANCPV, or the low attenuation non-calcified coronary plaque volume. This is high-risk coronary plaque that contains a necrotic core, and that plaque is high risk of rupture and full occlusion of the coronary arteries. The final background thing I just wanted to touch on is contingency management, and John already explained to our listeners what that is. Basically, it's a program where you get prizes, usually money, for every week you go without using drugs. The longer you go, the bigger the prizes. And it's a program, like John said, that's been shown to be effective at treating stimulant use disorder. So now that we have those background facts in mind, I'm going to talk about the clinical question. The clinical question was, among patients who had HIV, coronary plaques, and used cocaine, did being in a contingency management program aimed at reducing cocaine use lead to regression of the coronary plaques and lower endothelin-1 levels. And this was a prospective cohort study. So it's been shown that contingency management works to get people to stop using cocaine. So this was a study to see if using contingency management helped out their heart disease. So who was in this study? It included people who were using cocaine at least four times a month for the past six months, so around once a week at least, they were HIV positive, and they had coronary plaques, so they had known coronary plaques. It excluded people who had symptomatic coronary artery disease or other serious medical or psychiatric diseases or pregnant, CKD, you know, couldn't participate in the study for some reason or couldn't receive the multiple cardiac CTs you had to get to be in this study. Who ended up in this study? It was done prior to COVID, so March 2014 to August 2017. It was done in Baltimore, 81% were men, 93% were black, 85% used tobacco, 
96% used alcohol. And then a minority, only 25% had high blood pressure, 3% had diabetes. The average BMI was 26. The average blood pressure is 127 over 74. And the average ASCVD risk score is 10.7%. Greater than 50% of people had coronary stenosis. So I want to stop here for a second. These are patients without the traditional cardiac risk factors. Very few had high blood pressure, diabetes, obesity, and their ASCVD risk scores were on the low side, you know, around 10%, mostly men. So they didn't have these traditional cardiac risk factors, but they had other risk factors for coronary artery disease, using cocaine, HIV positive, using tobacco, using alcohol. So people who are high risk, but their risk is not adequately captured by our standard Framingham model. The intervention was a 12-month cash-based contingency management program where you could earn up to $1,530 if you stayed cocaine-free for an entire year. There was no comparison group since this was a prospective cohort study. It was not a randomized controlled trial. And the outcomes, which they looked at at baseline, six months and 12 months, were cocaine use, endothelin-1 levels, and coronary plaque burden using a cardiac CT angiogram. They looked at a bunch of secondary outcomes like blood pressure, lipids, fasting glucose, CRP, and then a bunch of medical and mental health factors. So, John, what did you think of the clinical question? I thought it was interesting because you said before, like uh, when I was kind of dipping my feet into kind of treating patients with HIV, they don't kind of meet our classical risk factors for heart disease. So, but we know they do have heart disease. And I was told whatever regular patients get, just subtract 10 years and they'll get the same thing at, you know, the same medical conditions at that time frame. So I think there's a high risk group, especially with the concordant stimulant use. I like the the surrogate markers, although I, like I think many people had to look up some of these since these are not kind of classical ones that I've I've read about before in other medical literature. I'm not a cardiologist, but I think it was nice to see that they were trying to kind of correlate this a couple of different ways, not only abstinence but also with kind of markers of, of endothelial dysregulation and then actual imaging. So kind of three different ways of kind of looking at success. I think it is important to keep in mind that these are all subclinical markers. So people who had active coronary artery disease, meaning chest pain, angina, heart attacks, they were excluded from this study. So that is a weakness that these markers, the endothelin one and the coronary plaque volume are kind of secondary markers. The patients probably would be more interested in more clinical outcomes, like did you have a heart attack or not? But I think you'd have to do a much bigger study to show a difference there. Yeah, definitely. So just real briefly, to talk about what was the contingency management intervention in this study. So basically you did urine drug screens once a week for the first, I think, eight weeks. And then if you had remained cocaine-free, you spread it out to every two weeks and you did urine drug screens every two weeks for the rest of the year. And you started out at $10, quickly escalated to $20 per drug-free urine sample, then 30, then 40, 60, 80, all the way up to $100 at the final week if your final urine was drug-free. If you did have drugs in your urine, then you got bumped back down a few levels and kind of started again. So you could still continue to win prizes even if you relapsed. You weren't like booted from the program, but to get the full amount, to get all the way to the $100 week, you had to stay drug-free, I think, for the whole year. So let's talk about validity. First, let's talk about some strengths. It was a pretty big study. There were 76 participants, 69 of whom completed the program. 
They looked at self-reported cocaine use, but they also confirmed it by urine testing at the beginning of the study and at every week or two throughout the program. They did blind the imaging analysis for the coronary CT angiograms, although the study, of course, wasn't blinded because there was, it was not randomized. There was no control group to blind against. And they did try to control their results statistically for baseline endothelium 1 levels, gender, alcohol use, cocaine use, amount of coronary stenosis, statin use, BMI, HIV, viral load, CD4 count, lipid levels, and ASCVD risk score. So they really tried to control for a lot of the baseline demographics of these patients to see if the contingency management program really was the thing that made the difference. And then they did include in the paper all the data from their regression analysis for those people who are into statistics. You could really see the nuts and bolts of their modeling if you wanted to know all the details. There were a few weaknesses of the study I wanted to bring up as well. First off, and this isn't really their fault, but just this was an exploratory study rather than a randomized controlled trial. There were seven participants who did not complete the contingency management program and they were not included in the analysis. I really thought they should be included And this is the problem with a lot of prospective studies of behavioral therapy programs. And we see this with research about AA and mutual support groups. If the programs don't work for people, those people drop out. So the only people who complete the programs are the people that the programs work for. And a study that says our program works for 100% of the people who complete it ends up being sort of circular. You could say, gosh, it's 100% effective. Everyone who could stick with it, if you just stick with it, it's 100% effective. But that's not really the right conclusion. That's circular logic. So we see people saying, you know, patients who've attended 500 AA meetings in their life have a whatever percent chance of staying alcohol-free. So if you could just hit that 500 AA meeting number, you have a real good chance of never relapsing back to alcohol use. But of course, who goes to 500 AA meetings? Only people who really like AA meetings and find them effective. All the people who they don't work for don't do those 500 meetings. So I really thought that people who had to drop out of the program should have been included in the final analysis. Like I said before, there were no clinical outcomes like MIs, hospitalizations, sudden cardiac death. Um, They just looked at subclinical atherosclerosis. However, it's okay. You know, the presence of atherosclerosis on imaging is an established risk factor for future heart disease. So they weren't bad secondary markers. It's just always better if you can have clinical markers, but that takes a lot more time and a lot more money for your study. The final limitation is that days of cocaine use was just an estimate based on periodic urine levels and self-report. So since cocaine is cleared relatively quickly from the body, patients were often going at least two weeks in between urine drug screens. So they could have timed their use so that they still were drug-free when they came in for their testing. So John, did you think this was a valid study? Yeah, I think it was. I think that when you kind of look at kind of the the surrogate markers that they were using, you talked about, I think that that does make sense. Ideally, it would have been nice. We would have had some patient-centered outcomes, although this is a smaller trial. I think you would have needed a much larger one to kind of capture enough to see the difference there. I, I hear what you say about the the cocaine use and the two week intervals. You're right. You could clearly time that. Although I think that if you really have a true kind of like cocaine use disorder, like I can't help yourself. I would think that that would be very difficult. Um, but still, you're right. It is confounding. Let's talk about the results. So I just want to remind everyone about the clinical questions so you know what we're talking about. So this was a prospective cohort study asking if among patients who had HIV, coronary plaque, and used cocaine, 
Did being in this contingency management program aimed at reducing cocaine use lead to regression of the plaque and lower endothelin 1 levels? So first result, which we already knew, but they just showed it again, contingency management works. This program worked to help people stay free of cocaine. All 69 participants reduced their cocaine use, and of these, 25, which is 36%, achieved complete cocaine abstinence for the duration of this study. So all the participants who stayed in the study reduced their cocaine use at least somewhat. So it worked, helped people reduce cocaine. After adjusting, second result, after adjusting for all the potential co-founding factors, the endothelin-1 levels at the 6-month and 12-month visits were significantly lower compared with baseline endothelin-1. So that marker of inflammation, marker of coronary plaques, went down. Next result, the low attenuation non-calcified plaque volume at the 12-month visit was significantly lower compared with the baseline plaque volume. So those are the two big findings, the two things they looked at in their primary outcome, the plaque volume and the endothelin-1. They were both lower at 12 months than they had been at the beginning of the study. So the authors concluded, and I'm just going to quote them, the findings of this study have not only demonstrated that contingency management is effective in achieving a sustained reduction in cocaine use, but also provided compelling evidence that reduction in cocaine use leads to quantifiable cardiovascular health benefits, including concurrent decreases in high-risk plaque burden and endothelin-1 among cocaine users with HIV-associated coronary atherosclerosis. They also did a bunch of modeling, and I'm not going to go into it here, but they did conclude with some of their models that the cocaine use played a dominant role in the development of the HIV-associated coronary artery disease. So you might think that the coronary artery disease was due to other factors like the high rates of alcohol use, tobacco use, something else going on. But it really seemed like cocaine was the dominant player for these patients in the development of their coronary artery disease. So, John, what did you think of the results? I mean, I think it was really interesting that they, at least what they looked at, there was a reduction. And I think we know that this kind of proves, once again, that contingency manancy works for um, kind of stimulant use disorder I really would love to see though, like what's the, in terms of that reduction of the endothelium one and the decreased plaque formation, like what's the, what would be the number needed to treat to actually get like a patient-centered outcome, like even a non-fatal MI event or mortality rate, like what would that look like? And I guess that's where you would need an incredibly large trial to determine that. Right. I'm sure you could do some kind of calculation out, but right. What, how many people do you have to put through this contingency management program to prevent one myocardial infarction? That would be a great finding. So finally, will the results help me in patient care? Again, the findings of this study revealed that being in the contingency management program reduced these markers of heart disease. I personally don't have very many patients exactly like those in this study I don't treat HIV, and in our area, patients with HIV receive comprehensive HIV and primary care together, and so they don't often have a separate PCP. I think I only have three patients total on my panel who have HIV. I also don't have contingency management program that I'm working with. There are some in our area, but none that I'm able to work with directly. I think the outcomes are useful to my patients. Stopping cocaine is an outcome that many patients want, and having regression of coronary artery disease is something I think people would want. In terms of cost versus benefits, the cost of the contingency management program prizes was $1,530 per year. And of course, you have to factor in the cost of the facilitators, the doctor who did it, the urine drug screens, you know, the building to run it in. But the prizes themselves, $1,530 per year. 
The average cost of a cocaine-related ED or hospital visit is about $10,000 each, and these are high-risk patients, so if they even have a cardiac event, the cost could run significantly higher. The authors estimated that the number needed to treat was six or seven to prevent one person from developing an obstructive coronary plaque per year. So that was their estimated number needed to treat. I'm not sure it's exactly the number needed to treat you were looking for, but they estimated six to seven people would need to be treated to prevent one obstructive plaque. So I think in the end, I can say that stopping cocaine will help your heart and a good way to stop using cocaine would be to be in a contingency management program. So that'll be my takeaway from this study. What about you? Yeah, I, I hope that kind of this just kind of gives more evidence for the fact that this is cost effective, you know, especially when you talk about like $10,000 for an emergency department stay, cost of a cardiac cath, if you have to provide that service, a year's worth of aspirin, Plavix, or one of our newer agents that can be very kind of expensive. I, I think that that would really kind of maybe sell this a little bit more as part of kind of healthcare dollar spending I think there's a ton of stigma against contingency management. That's the problem. It's like not that expensive, but people just hate the idea that you're paying people to stay off drugs. Yeah, I could see that. Well, we got a few comments on Twitter about episode 20, which is about using Asdia naltrexone for alcohol use disorder. So Dr. Siri Lanks said, very interesting episode about a paper I had not seen. Men with drinking problems who would take naltrexone to reduce drinking. Only on days they felt the urge to binge and it worked. From Dr. Jessica Johnson, this is why I love treating alcohol use disorder. So many people see recovery choices as a dichotomy and there is so much room between the two ends of that spectrum and incredible tools that we can use to help people find their preferred relationship with alcohol. And finally, Dr. Thomas Walters, I enjoyed this podcast on my way to the addiction medicine clinic this morning, another tool for the belt. So we appreciate those comments a lot. Thank you for listening to the Addiction Medicine Journal Club. The best part of any journal club is the conversation and we want to hear what you have to say. To have your opinions about the article included in a future episode, send us your comments on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Spotify, email, or join our Facebook group. The links are in the show notes. Original theme music was composed by Benjamin Kennedy, audio editing by Aaron McHugh, video production by Paul Kennedy, produced by Dr. Patrick Beeman and Ars Longa Media. Addiction Medicine Journal Club is intended for educational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. The views expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect those of our employers or the authors of the articles we review. All patient information has been modified to protect their identities. Thank you for being part of the conversation and have a great day.